wonderful to be back here. This is my second visit to Sweden. I think my last trip to Europe before the pandemic was here, and this is my first trip to Europe again after the pandemic. So it's probably my fault. I'm very sorry about the past three years, but now that I'm back, it's over. So we can all relax now. My topic for this um, day-long conference on sanctification is Luther discovers his doctrine of sanctification among the saints of Genesis. Luther got rid of the saints. That's the standard line in the telling of the Reformation story. The only problem is that it is wrong. Luther got rid of the invocation of the saints, yes, as in prayer to the saints for favors, on the assumption that God is not so agreeable to human requests as saints are. Luther actually granted that probably the saints pray for us in heaven, but he could find no biblical evidence that we should pray to them, and certainly not as an alternative to prayer to God. Luther also noticed that in New Testament usage, saint is basically a synonym for Christian. God's holy ones, saints, are all the baptized who believe in the good news of Christ. Saint is therefore not a distinguished category within the church any more than priest. All the baptized are priests and all the baptized are saints. Sainthood is not a moral category, but a soteriological category. However, to say only that Luther eliminated the invocation of the saints, or Luther only made saint and Christian into logical equivalents, is to neglect a much larger and far more interesting story. Luther did not only eliminate where the saints were concerned, he also retained, altered, and added. And this is exactly what we should expect of him, a strategy in keeping with all of his reforms in church practice. Thus, in Luther's writings across the whole of his career, we can detect the development of a new definition of sainthood, even in the specific sense of unique and remarkable Christian people. For Luther, it began with the first martyrs of the Reformation, Johannes van den Eschen and Henricus Vos, who were burned at the stake in Antwerp for their refusal to retract their faith in the gospel according to Luther's interpretation. This terrible event took place on July 1st, 1523, so almost 500 years ago now. Luther was saddened and indeed a little ashamed that he was not the first to pay with his life for the rediscovery of the gospel. But to show honor to these two men who did, Luther composed his very first hymn commemorating their martyrdom. It was the only hymn of this style he ever wrote, his only martyrological hymn, but it unleashed a flood of music from him and in the year that followed, most of his hymns were written. Unfortunately, Johannes and Henricus in Antwerp were not the only martyrs and confessors of the Evangelical Reformation. 
Luther learned of and found other ways besides hymns to commemorate the suffering in particular of Lambert Thorne, a friend of Johannes and Henricus who died several years later in prison, Henry van Zutphen, another martyr in the Netherlands, Leonhard Kaiser beheaded in Vienna, and Robert Barnes burned at the stake in England. It seems that these real-life cases of martyrdom for the gospel caused Luther to reevaluate the martyrs of the past as well. Initially shy about comparisons between himself and Jan Hus, the Bohemian reformer, Luther eventually came to honor and endorse Jan Hus as a true martyr of the gospel. And while Luther did express skepticism about the excesses of certain saint stories, and especially the miracles attributed to many saints, he continued to speak positively of a number of saints and the positive role they could play in the Christian life. So, of course, it was quite easy to maintain festivals in honor of the apostles, Mary, the mother of God, and Mary Magdalene, since after all, they were biblical figures. But Luther would even continue to preach on St. Christopher while fully acknowledging that St. Christopher was fiction. Because the good spiritual and theological lessons drawn from St. Christopher were enough to keep him in circulation. Luther also promoted revised lives of the saints, of especially church fathers, for pious Christians, and he wrote prefaces to books endorsing such things. In fact, in a 1535 preface to a confession written by Lazarus Spengler, the lay reformer of Nuremberg, Luther described in detail his hopes for a program of purified saint veneration or hagiography. Luther writes, Next to the Holy Scripture, there is indeed no book more helpful for Christendom than the legends of the dear saints, especially those which are pure and authentic. For example, in them we find such sweet descriptions of how the saints believed God's word from their hearts, confessed it with their mouths, praised it with their deeds, and honored and confirmed it with their suffering and death. All of these things give immeasurable comfort and strength to the weak in faith, and they make those who are already strong even more courageous and bold. If we teach the scriptures alone, without the examples and stories of the saints, though the Spirit does work abundantly within, nevertheless, it is a very powerful help if we also hear or see the examples of others externally. Would you have ever believed Martin Luther could say such a thing about the saints? But he did, and it's true. Stories of true saints can serve the purposes of the gospel. Now, Luther's rethinking of human holiness and the notion of sainthood continued throughout his career. Obviously enough, his teaching on justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, founded and premised on God's unmerited favor through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, 
meant that many versions of sanctification, as previously taught in the Christian church, had to be set aside. Yet Luther was always concerned with sanctification, with the holiness of life, and with a proper observance of the law, not to earn salvation or divine approval, but as an expression of faith and service toward the neighbor. His 1520 treatise on good works, the ideas of which found their way into his catechisms, is proof enough of that. And yet, here I would like to propose a bold thesis. I admit it is somewhat overstated, but I am being provocative on purpose to make a point. My thesis is this. Luther did not truly discover his full-bodied and wide-ranging doctrine of sanctification until he dove deeply into the practice of hagiography, which is to say looking closely at the lives of the saints. But also, Luther did not find saints worthy of his sustained attention until he turned to his final major project in life, a 10-year-long commentary on the book of Genesis. Neither the Reformation martyrs, nor the great lights of the church, nor even the apostles and women of the New Testament gave Luther his fullest doctrine of sanctification. In fact, it wasn't even Christians who gave Luther his fullest doctrine of sanctification. Luther's ideal saints were the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis. Yes, Luther's ideal saints were Old Testament Jews. Now, let me pause for a moment and address directly this surprising discovery. Luther's hatred for the Jews as people and for rabbinic Judaism as a religion is well-known and well-documented. It comes through in the Genesis commentary. I make no excuses for it, but I will not dodge it or assume that I am not somehow entangled in the long and terrible history of Lutheran and Christian anti-Judaism. As I have worked on this issue in my own career, one horrible fact has come through to me. Luther was famous, powerful, and eloquent in his hatred of Jews and Judaism, but unfortunately he was not unique. He had almost no first-hand knowledge of Jews and Judaism, but he drew on scripture, both testaments, as well as church history and contemporary reports, and all of them argued, as far as he could tell, in support of his Jew hatred. Needless to say, post-Holocaust, Christianity has finally begun a serious reckoning with its role in oppressing and murdering Jews throughout history. I take responsibility for that, and I try in my own work to do what repair I can. But that leads to another point, and one that further complicates this difficult issue. For me, one of the most important breakthroughs I had in my own understanding of the Christian faith in Jesus Christ came from fully grasping that Jesus was and is a Jew, that he was and is a son of Israel, and that in fact, I was reading everything in the New Testament wrong if I did not take the Old Testament as its 
theological, spiritual, and symbolic foundation. With that discovery, not only did much of the New Testament become much more meaningful and transformative for me, it also allowed me to find my way into Old Testament books that had meant nothing to me before, Leviticus above all. I have long noticed how many Christians place almost no value on the Old Testament, and how even the most liberal, tolerant Christians regularly use Jews and Judaism as an example of everything that is wrong with religion. So I thought that learning to love the Old Testament was the simple cure to our problem. Well, it is certainly part of the cure, but here is the problem. Luther loved the Old Testament too. He loved it far more passionately and attentively than most Christians today or in the past. He was not wrong to do that. The problem was that the more he understood the gospel of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament, the more frustrated he became that Jews did not interpret both testaments in the same light. In other words, love of the Old Testament worsened Luther's attitude toward actual Jews instead of improving it. This is a really painful dilemma. I stand by the conviction that we Christians read the New Testament wrong if the strong light of the Old Testament isn't shining on it at all times. But clearly, this does create the danger of contempt and anger toward Jews who do not reach the same religious convictions that we do. For now, the only solution I see is to refuse and repent of all Jew hatred while continuing to take the Old Testament with utmost devotion and seriousness. Therefore, in what follows, I will be very appreciative of all the ways that Luther sees examples of faith in the figures of Genesis, who are clearly not Christians in faith, nor Gentiles in ethnicity. They are Jews. And I will take this as an important learning point for us Christians and Gentiles. But I will not follow Luther in condemning the Jews of Jesus' time, or ever after for failing to be Christians. This is not the truly evangelical way to make use of Luther's insights about faith and obedience from the patriarchs and matriarchs. Let us instead take the lesson of humility. Here's how Luther himself put it. These patriarchs are saints in the truest sense of the word, and in comparison with them, we are altogether nothing. Now then, to the matter at hand. Why exactly was Luther so inspired by these people in Genesis and the Old, in the Old Testament? The answer is simpler than you might expect. Genesis shows us something that the New Testament does not, narratives of the whole human lifespan in its ordinary course. The Gospels and Acts focus on non-representative human beings at the moment of cosmic kairos. But, by definition, that is not the usual state of affairs, and it is not so helpful to us who live outside the kairos moment. Christ and John the Baptist are beyond comparison, Luther admits, and so are the Apostles. 
But, he points out, all these had a short span of life. Abraham, however, lived for a long time and did many wonderful deeds besides. Therefore, he is rightly considered the chief of all the saints. It's as if Luther were saying, try making it into your hundreds still holy, and then we can talk about being a saint. This notion of the normal span of human life is, in fact, central to Luther's thought on the saints. And it derives directly from his close reading of the Genesis text. What does Genesis talk about? Well, God, obviously, and we will come back to God in a moment. But it talks about a lot of other things, too. Things that previous Christian interpreters found irrelevant, unworthy, or undignified in Holy Scripture. So, Genesis talks a lot about cows and goats and breeding them, about planting crops, about getting from here to there and back again, about marrying and giving in marriage, about conceiving and bearing children, both good and bad ways to go about doing that. Meals are eaten, wine is drunk, households are managed. Luther remarks, I do not always pray, nor do I always meditate on the law of the Lord and struggle continually with sin, death, and the devil, but I put on my clothes, I sleep, I play with the children, eat, drink, etc. Now you might be starting to think, aha, this is Luther's doctrine of vocation. The everyday business of life is blessed. And that is true to an extent, but I think nowadays we tend to overinflate the notion of vocation. We demand meaningful work that makes the world a better place. That is not the point Luther is pursuing here. It's still too religious in the human sense of the word. Luther puts the issue rather like this. One can ask why the Holy Spirit mentions such trifling, childish, slavish, womanish, worldly, and carnal things concerning mostly saintly people who have very clear promises. All those things they have in common with any other godless people. Why does the Spirit not write about other things, things that are weightier and more sublime? For of what importance is the fact that they had to sweat while occupying themselves with these sordid household affairs? Luther replies, let the wicked man be removed, lest he see the glory of God, Isaiah 26. And Luther concludes, God hides his saints under such masks and carnal matters in order that nothing may seem to be more abject than they are. So, to put it another way, the ordinary, unextraordinary stuff of life is life in and with God. Eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, the sweat and blood of child-making and child-bearing, building a shelter, tending animals, this is all the work of God the Creator. Creation is not some romantic ecological notion. 
Believing and living the doctrine of creation means simply to be a body to the glory of God. Luther's teaching on sainthood is first and foremost a vindication of bodily life. Not theoretically, but fleshily, in all the real stuff that bodies have to do, experience, and suffer. Luther comments, even though these works do not have the appearance of sanctity, one remains in good standing even when one does these things. For we observe that God did not consider it beneath his dignity to have these seemingly unimportant and paltry works recorded in his book. Now, it is important to recognize that Luther is not romanticizing bodily life or offering a kind of saccharine blessing on obedience to our physical needs and impulses. Bodily life is also sinful life because human life is sinful life. It is not innocent in and of itself. Bodily life is good because God made it and God redeems it and God covers it. Its sinfulness is covered by Christ's righteousness. So Luther says, although marriage is an unclean kind of life because the copulation of the man and the woman cannot take place without carnal uncleanness, tending cattle is a filthy business, and the life of the government and of its subjects is highly impure and abounds in vices, nevertheless, God has richly honored all this and has ordained it by his word. And if you hold fast to his word, you have already been cleansed of all your uncleanness. Now, furthermore, the saint's bodily life has a complement in Luther's way of thinking, the saint's emotional life. Every bit as much as it is a vindication of bodily life, Luther's teaching on sainthood is a vindication of emotional life. You may have been told that Luther rejected the scholastic notion that grace does not destroy but perfects nature. Lutherans often dislike this because it sounds like a claim for creaturely independence and potential apart from God. But in his Doctrine of the Saints, Luther accepts this point, but transforms it and makes it his own. Grace and the gift of holiness does not destroy human nature, human emotions, just like it does not destroy human bodies. To be holy does not mean to be emotionless. Luther says, the Holy Spirit does not make trunks and irrational human beings out of people when he pours faith into them. No, he preserves and increases whatever good there is in nature. He preserves and increases fatherly and filial affections, etc. So if anything, Luther is saying, where grace abounds, emotions abound too. Affections are intense and impassioned. The saints are unsettled and carried away by their affections, Luther says. Not blocks of wood devoid of feeling, but they are human beings. And the emotions and affections implanted in human nature are present in them to a higher degree than they are in others. 
For the saintlier one is, and the more intimately one knows God, the more one understands the creatures and is attached to them. Abraham, for example, Luther says, overflowed with inexpressible groans, sighs, sobs, and fatherly tears. Luther makes a huge deal out of a passing remark in Genesis 35, verse 8, that Rebekah's nurse Deborah died and was buried under an oak tree below Bethel, to which Jacob gave a special name. Luther praises Jacob's tears over the loss of this saintly woman. And then Joseph is moved in his very bowels with compassion for his rotten, treacherous brothers. The Holy Spirit loves the tenderhearted, Luther tells us. And even the emotion of anger has its place, if rightly used, as Jesus himself shows us. Now, as with the body, this is not to romanticize the impulsive or the melodramatic or the hysterical. Since these emotions have been corrupted by original sin, Luther observes, one must then see to it that they are corrected. In human society, we learn to curb and subdue the sins of lust, wrath, and similar emotions and in this way to use wrath and sexual desire in the proper manner so that pride, ambition, hatred, lust, etc. are purged out. But this cannot be done without great toil and grief. Therefore, Luther continues, one sees in the saints not only that human nature is created this way with its emotions, which the Holy Spirit does not extinguish, but one also sees the weakness and corruption against which the saints fight constantly, like men standing in readiness for battle. The saints take pains to slay their depraved emotions, but not to slay their emotions simply. See how great the power of nature is, Luther says. The better and purer it is, the more excellent and ardent are its natural affections. Nor do grace and the Holy Spirit remove or corrupt emotions, but the Holy Spirit heals emotions and restores them to a healthy state. Now, at this point, the spiritually aspirational among us may object that hardly anything sets Christians apart from others, whether they are unbelievers or belong to another religion. And Luther agrees. The saints are not always impelled by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he says. They have their desires and afflictions just like everybody else does. Therefore, the saints too engage in ordinary pursuits. They sow, plow, build. Reason and diligence are adequate for doing these things. And although the ungodly too do similar things, Nevertheless, in the case of godly people, these things are pleasing to God because of the faith in which the godly live. So it is not showy being a holy person. Luther remarks that the most surprising thing about the saints of Genesis is that in the kind of life involving the management of a household, they had absolutely no unusual or special showing of saintliness. 
Now, should this make us a little uneasy? Is being a Christian really nothing different from being a good parent, a good worker, a good citizen? Well, if saintliness were defined from below, from a human perspective, it would be very hard to draw that line. And probably that is a good thing. But Luther's intention is not to define sainthood by behavior. So far, he has simply excluded the idea that sainthood cannot coexist with, for example, being a farmer, making love to one's spouse, dealing with a defiant child or a difficult teenager, having a nice breakfast, or grieving over a dead parent. These are human things. Doing these things is not the essential quality of sainthood, it is the essential quality of humanity, created by God, in whom the holiness of God does battle against sin. So what does set the saints apart? Here's what Luther says. In all ages, God has done great and wonderful works through his saints. These works are impressive and strike the eye. But for us who teach as well as learn the Holy Scriptures, God's own word must be especially resplendent. This, above all, adorns the legends of the saints and distinguishes them from the accounts of the heathen. They are called sacred accounts because the word of God shines in them. In short, a saint is someone to whom the word of God has been addressed. Abraham lies, Jacob deceives, Joseph brags, not attractive qualities in any of them. On behavioral grounds, they are disqualified as saints. In fact, one of Luther's most distinctive teachings about saints is how often he stresses the sins of the saints. To be a saint is not to be perfect, as popular usage, at least in English, has it. Even the greatest saints sometimes fall, Luther insists, and their sins are not to be excused as if somehow their sins don't count because they are saints. But again, this is because Luther does not define sainthood primarily on the human side. Humans are sinners. Saints are human. Therefore, saints are sinners. But to the saints, God has spoken. And this is what draws our attention to them, our interest and even our honor. Luther says, we teach that in the examples of the saintly fathers, it should be looked upon as the main thing and the highest commendation that God spoke with them and that they had the word of God. Now this might sound kind of discouraging actually to believers today seeking life with God. You might think, well, it was easy for Abraham back in Ur of the Chaldeans or up on top of Mount Moriah. God showed up in person, or he sent an angel, or he spoke in a big voice out of the sky. I could be a saint if God spoke directly to me that way. But Luther is always one step ahead of us. Yes, there is something unique and irreplaceable about these scriptural accounts of encountering God which test and form the ways that we speak about God. 
But are you ready for this? Luther actually rejects the idea of a big theophany or voice from the sky. Luther does not have a loud voice coming out of the clouds. Luther historicizes the word of God and places it on human lips. Once humans have been sent out of the Garden of Eden, they only hear God's word from each other. Astonishingly enough, Luther makes every instance in Genesis of the Lord spoke and takes it and attributes it to a human actor as the medium or relay of the word. So Adam is the first preacher of the church. He is actually the one to confront Cain over Abel's death. Adam is the one speaking, according to Luther. And when Adam returns to the earth, Noah's son Shem becomes the new one to speak the word of God. And on it goes. Melchizedek speaks the word of God to Abram. And Luther actually puts into Melchizedek's mouth a good summary of Luther's own view of divine and human agency. Abram, says Melchizedek, you have done great things, but God did them through you. This victory must be ascribed not to you, but to God. But God did them through you. And Luther concludes, Abram gladly heard that the glory of this achievement was being transferred from him to its true author. Now, what is the effect of Luther's historicizing of the word of God? For our purposes, it's that the saints of the Old Testament are not in a chronologically privileged position over against us. They do not have an advantage that we lack as if we were some kind of secret dispensationalists who had to resign ourselves to God's permanent hiddenness. Luther says God has always spoken through preachers. He did then, he does now. Preachers learn to recognize the word of God today through the written scripture, which they have received from their ancestors and wrestle with and fight against and ultimately defer to but they speak the same word to people living now as back then. You are the man, nor do I condemn you, go forth and sin no more. For freedom, Christ has set you free. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words of God now and always. If you hear those words, you too may become a saint. So now we are, are drawing quite close to Luther's rich understanding of sainthood. Saints are those to whom the word of God is addressed. But this is not simply a transfer of information or a divine download into our brains. The word of God is not a neutral, take it or leave it kind of affair. God does not ask you to do something and then leave it up to you in your cooperation. No, Luther says, God gets right into your life and starts messing around with it. Much of the time, we do not enjoy this. Luther even gives it a very uncomfortable name. He calls it the game God plays with his saints. You will come to see, Luther says, that your life is a game played by God. 
that all you do and suffer is pleasing to him, provided that it is done in faith, and that finally death itself is precious in the sight of the Lord. For we see that God took delight in the lives and all the actions of the patriarchs. How does this game unfold? Luther again. God places his own saints under the cross. And although he delays their deliverance, nevertheless, in the end, he gloriously snatches them out of their dangers and makes them victorious, but only after they have first been greatly vexed and have been wearied to despair by sundry conflicts. To be aware of this divine procedure with which God rules us is profitable and necessary. Thus we learn to show patience in adversity, to trust in God's goodness, to hope for salvation, and in prosperity to humble ourselves and to give glory to God. For it is God's custom to do both, to bring down to hell and then bring back, to afflict and to comfort, to kill and to make alive. This is the game with its continual changes that God plays with his saints. For Luther, the supreme example of this is in the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. The chief significance of this story, Luther says, is the example of perfect saints and of temptations in the highest degree, not against flesh, blood, and the devil, but against God appearing in a hostile form. Now, note, this is not because God is arbitrary or sadistic. Luther explains, it is God's will that precautions be taken against both courses, that we should not be proud according to the flesh or despair according to the spirits, but that we should proceed by the middle way between sorrow and joy, between boasting and disgrace. The reason for this so-called game is because God is not a principle or a theory or a formula, or an equation to be mastered. Just like we are not any of those things. God is personal. God is three persons interacting with us personally in all the very complex ways that personal relationships unfold. And all the more so when the relationship is between the creating Almighty Father, who sends his, us his Son and his Spirit, and us mortal sinners. God says to Moses in Exodus, you cannot see my face, but you shall see my back. And Hagar says of God in Genesis, I have seen the back of him who sees me. For Luther, these two examples are not just metaphors, but they reveal the very substance of how the saints interact with God. To be a saint is to suffer but first and foremost, to suffer God. Luther explains, it is more useful for us to be driven and led by God than to act, understand, foresee, and arrange things according to our own plans. Our suffering is the saintliest life of all. Thus, therefore, in one moment, saints have been driven headlong from heaven into hell, from life into death.
Now I have a question. Who is excited about becoming a saint now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, one person. Wow, you see, you're very brave. Okay. <laughs> I thought most of you would not be too excited. Uh, it's probably pretty good proof that if you want to be a saint, or if you are trying to be a saint, you are headed in the opposite direction at the speed of light. Still, Luther says, we should take comfort in the stories of the saints. They show, first of all, that troubles and weakness and emotional suffering are not alien to the experience of holiness, but unfortunately, right at the center of it. The saints don't know everything all at once by some miracle, but they share in the universal human experience of striving toward knowledge and dealing with uncertainty. Sainthood is not a steady trajectory of victory, but a better acquaintance with death. Luther speaks eloquently about the death of Sarah, that most holy matriarch, as he calls her, in comparison with whom we are nothing. And yet, for all her holiness, Luther says, her death differs in no wise from our own death, but is just as odious and ignominious. The saints' bodies were buried, consumed by worms, and hidden in the earth on account of their stench. Yet, they were the most saintly people, and though departed, they are actually alive in Christ. Or another example, David's conquest of Goliath doesn't do me personally much good. Honestly, I am not often called upon to fight a giant. But David's weakness, sins, trepidation, and trials, his complaints, sobs, fears, and feelings of despairs, these hold me up in a wonderful manner, Luther says, and give me great consolation. In Luther's view, God permits the saints to sin and fail precisely so we can see how God forgives and renews the lost, the sinful, the stubborn, and the weak. Let me conclude now with an analogy of my own. I think we can say, building on all this, that becoming holy is something like learning to speak a language. We all start out as babies. We cannot speak a single word but we all love to listen as others speak to us. In time, like babies, we start to imitate the people around us. First sounds, then words and phrases. After a while, we try forming our own sentences. We all make errors as we go when we speak as little children, but nobody shames us for that. It's just part of the process. The people in our lives keep speaking to us, keep encouraging us. They speak to us at our level, but always are trying to draw us up to the next level with words or ideas or phrases that are a little bit challenging, a little bit beyond our capacity. As we grow and become proficient, we keep listening to and learning from fluent speakers who model the language for us. They show us its possibilities and they keep correcting our mistakes. In this shared language, whether it is of literal languages we speak, or indeed of holiness, in which so many have, before us have already expressed themselves, we try expressing our own thoughts. And what will we say? Well, we will do quite well if we repeat the classics, 
that have shaped so many for so many generations. There is much human wisdom already expressed in speech and in the lives of the saints. And we benefit from memorizing and repeating what has come before us. I would say, if anything, today, this practice is undervalued. We should do more of it. But it is out of this vast deposit of spoken words or of lived holiness that we begin to add something of our own. Maybe not original, but still good and true and authentic to our own time and place and person. And maybe, maybe we can offer something unique and original. New words, new lines, new poems, new saintliness. I think sanctification does work something like this. We are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, both in the past and granted God in the present as well. We see faithfulness, love, obedience, and joy modeled in a whole assortment of believers. We see how very different kinds of people are all members of the same body of Christ. We see the variety of gifts prompted by the one in the same spirit. We see sinners who nevertheless enact saintliness on this earth. When you are fluent in a language, it doesn't mean that every sentence you speak is brilliant. Oof, that would be exhausting. But sometimes when you speak, you break through with startling beauty. You speak pure poetry. I think we should say the saints are the poets of holiness. But let's add one last Lutheran twist on this analogy. The saints are poets, yes, but only secondarily. The saints are primarily poems, God's poems spoken and sung to us. As Luther put it, such is the nature of God's poems, as Paul neatly says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his poema, that's the Greek. God is the poet, and we are the verses or songs he writes. What a gift and joy for us that we get to be God's songs in flesh and bone and emotion in our lives in this world. Thank you.